Hello, and welcome to our podcast. I'm Dr. Mark White, and today I'm going to tell you a story. It's a story about a patient of mine who had a complex problem involving chronic recurrent foot pain that was getting worse. It's also about taking complex problems like his, compressing out as much of the complexity as possible to make it as simple as possible to analyze, but not simpler. And it's about how we do that with ideas borrowed from other disciplines. But of course, it's much more than that. Our story begins with Chuck. He works in a busy and growing metal fabrication shop as a forklift driver. He owns the business and drives the forklift up to eight hours a day. He's the kind of man who has led a rough and tumble life, and he is well acquainted with adversity. Chuck used to compete as a motocross rider. He last competed 25 years ago. That's when he had an accident. Except it didn't happen on the track. It happened on the highway. One evening after work, in the refreshingly cool fall air and waning light of the day, he was driving home on his motorcycle when a driver in a van, who had been aggressively weaving his way in and out of traffic, sped up to pass him. On a curve. Just as the sun was going down and the long rays of red light filled the partly cloudy sky, the van sideswiped Chuck. He was knocked off the road and into a ravine filled with tall grass and large rocks. The front tire of the road bike came to a crashing stop against a stone ridge. The bike and Chuck flipped in the air. When they came down, the full weight of the motorcycle smashed into his right ankle, shattering it. The bike and Chuck tumbled their separate ways. When they came to rest, Chuck was unconscious. The hot bike nearby started a fire. Chuck regained consciousness. People moved around him. Flashing lights of first responders danced in the background. The air was filled with the smell of smoke and blood. There was a constant ringing noise inside his head. Emergency workers spoke to him in muffled tones. Nearby... Fireman hosed down the grass fire and ruined bike. His mangled ankle was carefully splinted and it was loaded onto a stretcher, then into the back of a waiting ambulance. Thirty-five minutes later, he was in the nearest emergency department. The on-call surgeon looked at his ankle with exposed bone and told him he didn't think he could save the foot. The bones were too badly mangled, too much time had passed since injury, and the blood supply was almost completely gone. Chuck insisted on keeping his foot. The surgeon told him he couldn't guarantee that keeping the foot would mean it would ever work right again, and without restored circulation and clean bone, which at this point going forward was susceptible to infection complications, after all he had been laying in a muddy ditch with an open wound for 45 minutes before emergency workers got to him after being notified by passing motorists, surgical preservation of the foot was at high risk for failure. Chuck told him to try anyway. Fast forward 25 years. Chuck kept his foot. He did battle infection, just like the surgeon warned him was likely. He nearly lost his foot a second time because of it, but after much frustration and medical work, the infection was finally cleared. Chuck went to physical therapy to help him regain better use of the foot and leg. He improved some, but eventually the gains quit coming. He would be out of PT for a while, then resume with someone else, then again quickly hit a ceiling he couldn't crack. In the beginning, that is, the first 10 years, he had done six rounds of PT with four different providers. 
there was a four-year gap where he didn't see anyone for his problem. It was reasonably stable. At least it was not worsening. And he could do most of what he wanted, but eventually his condition did worsen. He resumed PT with a different physical therapist for several weeks, then was discharged with minor improvements and lots of residual deficits. He sought out another PT who specialized in lower extremity rehab, but didn't really change much and mostly repeated treatment techniques he had already experienced. Next, he consulted with a podiatrist. The smashed ankle was stiff, and it remained in a plantar flex position that worsened over time. He limped, and years ago had switched to wearing shoes with a heel, but now he had to switch to wearing shoes with a taller heel to accommodate the worsening plantar flexion contracture. Plus, he had a generally stiff ankle that didn't move well in any direction, and it impaired his balance on that side. He had even fallen once, recently at the shop. The right-sided lower extremity kinematics were altered to such a degree that simply walking was increasingly difficult. It had taken him over a year after his injury to regain normalized ambulation. Now, that was threatened by a worsening problem. The bottom of his foot repeatedly grew a thick, painful callus over the second metatarsal head. His podiatrist would shave it off every year. He had been doing so for about the past eight to ten years. Then the callus would grow back. Over time, it grew back quicker, and it was more painful. What used to take 12 months to worsen decreased to 10, then 6, and for the past year he was visiting the podiatrist every three to four months when the pain in his foot finally got so bad he couldn't stand it. So what was Chuck doing in my office? He'd already been to six physical therapists and one podiatrist. A lot of people spent time looking at his problem and trying to solve it. He himself was no quitter, but he was feeling like he was at the end of the line for this problem. Still, he kept searching for answers. In cases like his, where multiple providers have been consulted over the years, I used to wonder what I could possibly offer that might be different, better, or helpful. It seemed improbable that I would be the person to solve his problem. After all, many qualified professionals had already seen him for evaluation and treatment, to no avail. Given his history, I imagined bony malalignment, possible bony union restricting via bony blockage of a talocrural movement into an unyielding tip-fib space as the plafond osteokinematics with dorsiflexion are mechanically limited, with possible contributions from lack of accessory motion through scar tissue adhesions. The same could be said for movement restrictions at the subtalar joint not allowing pronation or supination to compensate for displacement of the superincumbent center of gravity. It was possible that parcel coalition and other bony exostosis may be present, thus creating further restrictions in important ways. So, bone and scar tissue would be the heart problems. Soft tissue issues, neuromotor control of joint stability and secondary effects on balance would all be easier to solve. Intermingled with these possibilities was the chance that the traumatic origin of his injury and the random carelessness of a stranger that caused it left unresolved psychological issues that were important barriers to recovery. These might need to be explored and dismantled. Layered into this was also the possibility of specific neurological deficits. Peripheral nerve entrapment, peripheral sensitization, central sensitization, or complex regional pain syndrome. Chuck told me the reason he was here. His podiatrist had offered a potential solution. He suggested that he cut the bone out of his foot, 
the second metatarsal, that was causing the pressure point for callus development. No more bone, no more callus. I was surprised. That seemed a radical solution to propose to a man who, decades before, had insisted on keeping his foot after another surgeon recommended removing it entirely. Never mind that this would introduce a host of other, all-new problems. Granted, it was only one bone, not the whole foot. But, as Chuck reasoned then, and asked his podiatrist, Don't I need that bone? What are the chances this will work? What am I facing if this doesn't work? Does this mean I develop calluses on the next metatarsal, then you remove that bone too? Where does it end? There are more than a few moments in my career where a posed solution by another provider appears misguided. Well-meaning, maybe, in many cases, and yes, the podiatrist wanted to help, and prior PT had not resolved this patient's complaint, so it seemed physical therapy had already exhausted what it had to offer. The big looming question was, now what? This patient found his way to me like most eventually did when I started my private practice, word of mouth. Later, for many, it became something along the lines of, there's this one man I've heard of. If you've tried everything else and you're at the end of your rope, see him. My practice didn't start out this way. It began pretty much like anyone else in outpatient PT private practice. What was different was my enthusiasm for cases that were different and challenging. These were most often chronic in nature. Unlike acute problems, they did not benefit from the passage of time. In this patient's case, he was, in fact, over time, worsening. As it turned out, this patient knew a former patient whose son I had helped avoid a surgery for an assumed problem described as plantar fasciitis that turned out to be a different problem entirely. That problem responded well to appropriate physical therapy treatment. He made a full recovery, and word of this particular success spread like ripples in a pond. At that point, he contacted his podiatrist, who referred him to me. Chuck's history did not present any surprises until it came to the description of the examination and treatment phases of his past physical therapy efforts. Review of radiology indicated, indicated that his bones healed in good alignment, there was no bone loss due to infection, no tarsal coalition, not even evidence of chondral surface erosions and changes in joint surface morphology due to advanced arthritis. No hardware crossed, impinged, or compromised any joint in any way. What was most surprising was how normal everything looked. Chuck's description of past exams revealed apparent skimping on physical measurements and tests of key joints and physical capacities. I didn't expect him to recall the details of measurements, but I did expect he would recall the fact that they were done. Most of the time, the big motions of plantar flexion and dorsiflexion were measured, and only those. Also, early on, an inability to execute a standing heel raise was measured but little else. Past treatments involved a mixed bag of hot packs, ultrasound, e-stem, manual therapy, lots and lots of manual therapy, and passive stretching aimed at his ankle and surrounding area, plus use of a stationary bike, and some attempts were made at strengthening his calf and quads with resistance bands and shorter quads. One past physical therapist even attempted to incorporate squats, but quickly ran into insurmountable, inexplicable ankle stiffness. 
As I reviewed Chuck's history, I had a hunch that one thing had been missed, and that one thing was vitally important. My physical examination findings corroborated my suspicion. I explained to Chuck what I was thinking and why. I instructed him to do one thing twice a day and three times a day if possible. I understood that his work was busy and it might only happen before and after the job, but it was important that it happen at least twice a day. He didn't outwardly appear to react what I had just explained, so I asked him what he was thinking. He said, it seems pretty, I don't know, minimalistic. I agreed. Nonetheless, this was, in my professional opinion, exactly the one thing that needed to be addressed. It was the one thing that had been missed over all these years and all the prior visits. If it didn't work, no worries. We would know soon enough, and we could change course if needed. Certainly, two weeks would be enough time to tell, and there was always surgery with an uncertain outcome. But if I was right, well, why not give it a try? Chuck agreed. We scheduled a follow-up visit in one week to check his progress. At the end of the week, he returned. This time, before he said a word, I noticed a change. He didn't limp, and he was smiling. He was still wearing the cowboy boots with the dull heels, but he shook my hands as he shook his head at the same time and said, I didn't have much confidence this would work, but I remembered what you said. It would take a little while, and it was not something that had been tried before in quite the same way. That little change made a big difference. My foot pain is noticeably less, and I can move my ankle more. After the first three days of doing my homework only twice a day, I felt better, so I bumped it up to three times a day. I added one session at work during my lunch break. My pain right now is easily half of what it was, maybe even 60% less. After only one week, I don't have any interest in surgery, none whatsoever. Hard to believe that after 25 years, that's all it took. I know what you're thinking. What one thing did I have Chuck do that made this difference? To put it simply, I had him stretch his calf, particularly and especially the soleus muscle. All his past stretching had emphasized only the two-joint gastrocnemius. This is fine if that is where the restriction to motion is located, but it is terrible if the soleus is overlooked and is in fact driving the restriction in motion. This limitation caused some other wise skilled practitioners to mobilize the talocrural, subtalar, and midtarsal joints, plus both ends of the fibula, while also prescribing straight leg wall stretches and supine hamstring stretches with a strap to pull the leg higher while pulling the ankle on a straight knee into as much dorsiflexion as possible. Of course, the soleus is a single joint muscle. It is not maximally stretched with any of the past methods used. I showed Chuck one variant in standing with a bent knee to stretch this very particular portion of the ankle muscle complex. With a little focused work, it loosened up nicely. I instructed him to continue the work he was doing with one further modification aimed at acquiring subtalar motion control of pronation and supination. Tolerances permitting, he could progress to a single leg stance to enhance the workload and proprioceptive feedback. At his two-week follow-up, Chuck arrived without the cowboy boots, the ones with a two-inch drop from heel to toe. He now wore casual shoes with a one-inch drop 
The foot pain was completely gone, and his balance was 90% of normal. I discharged him after another two-week follow-up where I checked to see if we needed to address any more residuals and to ensure that progress continued. There were no unmanageable residual issues. He continued to improve. Surgery avoided. He kept his second metatarsal. Time to reflect. Most chronic problems are resistant to treatment. If they were not, they would not be chronic. I suspect this difficulty is related to the difficulty of first understanding the problem. Failure at this basic, though complicated, task leads to subsequent downstream failures. Having said that, it is also true that complex problems are sometimes easier to solve than we think. Sometimes, all we have to do is take a step back and look at the big picture. And when we do this, often what is revealed is something that has been overlooked. People get caught up in their expertise. For stubborn problems, they dig down deep into their professional knowledge in a futile search for a solution that isn't there. They become distracted with a white noise of information not relevant to the problem because they don't understand the problem. Instead, from a different perspective, the solution could easily be staring them in the face. It's like looking at a box with the lid off. The box has six sides. From five different sides, there is no way to tell what's inside. But from one angle, looking at the side that is open, it's obvious. I suppose we are all guilty of this at one time or another. I spoke about this problem in a previous podcast, The Engineer and Orthopedic Abdominal Pain. Professional knowledge is essential, but it can also be blinding. It's difficult to think outside of the box if the box is all you know, and you are in the box with five ways to go that do not lead to a way out. Only one does, but not everyone will see it. This is a professional trap that catches many. Maintaining flexibility in our thinking is important. Plus, in this case, I had the advantage of seeing history of what did not work. In the beginning, many of the treatment methods used were probably appropriate and may have eliminated existing problems. I did not see or have to deal with them because they were already gone. Also, in the early weeks and months post-op, there are a great many other issues to consider which have more importance than a specific mobility deficit, such as watching for signs of infection or signs of scar tissue adhesions or both or other problems that can significantly limit mobility and function. Sometimes, complex problems don't need complex solutions. A prerequisite to this style of thinking is that we must first seek to understand the problem. Is it a single-factor problem? Or, more commonly, a multifactorial problem? In this case, though rare in my setting, it was a single-factor problem. Addressing that one factor solved the primary problem. Everything else was secondary or tertiary. It is nice when that happens, and it is probably the collective knowledge of cases like this that lead to the silver bullet approach for far too many things, i.e. seeking only the one thing for every patient that will cure whatever ails them. This is a reductionist approach that clumsily ignores important contributing factors. Reality, I must emphasize again, is often much more complicated. However, even truly complex cases can be reduced to something manageable. 
Here I am referring to summarizing complex but related aspects of the problem into simpler chunks. The chunks still represent the main idea of the specific multifaceted domains of interest, but they are easier to conceptualize in a way that makes sense. The details can be confusing and even misleading. Having a way to reduce this complexity while still preserving the essence of the subdomains is important. Several methods are available to make sense of complex data. In psychology, this idea of grouping related concepts that are categorically distinct from their groupings is also known as chunking. This makes rapid analysis of related complex ideas simpler. One common example of simplifying information storage and retrieval is memorizing a string of numbers 12 digits long. This is more difficult than memorizing a grouping of three four-digit numbers. Grouping chunks of related information makes it easier to work with that information. A related process in quantum physics known as renormalization also seeks to deal with messy complexity. It does this in several different ways, depending on what type of complexity needs to be dealt with. Choosing a model depends on several factors. In application, it simply means applying a set of rules to explicitly guide decision-making within the boundaries of the problem. Like looking at an unassembled jigsaw puzzle, knowing what the big picture is supposed to look like helps, as does knowing where the boundaries are for all four sides. We may recall, for example, a severely impaired lower extremity function score for a given patient, but not the particular details of individual ratings for a particular task described by the LEFS, or a string of normal findings in a patient with a particular kind of pathology not represented by the usual baseline physical measures and special tests. That, in essence, is what was done here. Related normal information was chunked away as nice to know, but not relevant to what was driving symptoms. It wasn't the lack of bony alignment abnormalities, lack of arthritic erosions, lack of bony exostosis, or lack of anything else clearly identified as pathological, yet pathology existed in the movement system. Understanding the biomechanical relationships from this perspective was the key to unlocking the problem. The reason this mono-intervention worked so well is rooted in understanding what is important about the distribution of forces across the metatarsal heads. This is critically dependent upon the talocrural joint angle and stiffness coupled with subtalar joint position and stiffness. Very simply, the plantar flexed and dorsiflexion stiff foot forces increased weight bearing to occur along the metatarsal heads, even while standing still. If the subtalar joint is flexible, it can move to compensate some for distribution of weight bearing loads on the metatarsals but it cannot do the job alone, and in fact, it is not well suited for this task at all. With a foot flat on the floor, in neutral alignment, which can only be accomplished with flexible talocrural and subtalar joints, the weight-bearing forces are distributed broadly across the heel, lateral foot, and across the metatarsal heads, all of them. Focal pressure loading does not happen, at least not in a way that is problematic. This represents normal foot postural dynamics. I restored the critical biomechanical capacities, first and primarily at the talocrural joint. This meant increasing the available dorsiflexion range of motion at the joint. With no more focal loading of the second metatarsal head due to the normalized foot posture and mobility, the plantar surface irritation immediately reduced. 
long-term, this patient recovered fully. No more surgeries of any kind were required, all because of this one simple realization. So, related but non-influential information could be chunked together and considered non-contributory to the problem. Other findings falling within the boundaries of the problem laid bare by chunking could be explored with renormalization tools to contextualize the problem in a way that made sense. A simple process of elimination of contributors to the problem was useful up front, but the back-end solution after this required a more sophisticated understanding. Knowledge of problem-solving processes from other disciplines can be useful. I wonder how many other complex problems can be thought of differently and, like examining the box, reveal insights that can be understood best from the proper perspective. I'm Dr. Mark White. That concludes our story for now. And, as always, may you and your patients be well. Thanks for listening.